0: I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're watching a movie and you're getting in maybe about five minutes into it and you're beginning to see the action and, you know, you can't join all the dots, but you know something really important happens and then it cuts to a scene and it says five years earlier. (laughs) That's in a sense what happens in Isaiah 6 we're brought back to the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. He's already written to us and then suddenly the scene moves back to the, the very beginning. Why is that? Because we need to understand why God has him saying what he's saying. There's a, an overarching context to all of this. And uh, it's one of the, probably, passages in Isaiah that many people, obviously we remember Isaiah uh, 53, the, the picture of the suffering servant, and Isaiah 9, where we sometimes quote at, at Christmas but this probably is third in, in, in terms of, of what people remember. The division that Isaiah gets of God in the temple. And I've entitled, as you can see, the sermon this morning, Serving God with his glory as motive and goal. Because in many respects, the glory of God, in a sense, is the great theme that touches everything. The whole earth is filled with his glory The angels say, the seraphim here, as they proclaim it. Even the the heavens declare the glory of God. the, The creation itself, as we were reminded in the opening psalm, declares his glory. And in the midst of this warning that comes to the people, whose overarching themes are simultaneously both judgment and salvation, the message now becomes more nuanced, or there's a a third vital element added, why is this so important? And the scene opens with a focus really on two people, God himself and the prophet. And in the midst of what is happening around Isaiah and the message he has to bring and the people he has to bring it to, and I would say in the midst of what's happening around us today, And the message that we have been commissioned to bring. There's a context that we always have to come back to. The glory of God. Who is it that we're serving? Who is it that we're desperately wanting people to engage with and acknowledge and turn to? It's this God. We need to look at him. To see him for who he really is. And in the light of who he is, and only in the light of who he is, to hear what he wants us to do. To be simultaneously aware of our utter unworthiness and inability to do what he's calling us to do, and simultaneously that he's actually cleansing us and equipping us to do just that. That's what Isaiah has to engage with here. There's another context, too. There's another king, but he's dead, King Uzziah. And as we saw many, well, many months ago now in the introduction, he had reigned for a generation, one of the longest reigns of the kings of Judah. And under his reign, the kingdom had been stable and prosperous. But now he was gone, as all human kings must go, as we discovered even this year with the the ending of the reign of Queen Elizabeth across the water. Isaiah, any more than anybody else, did not know what was to follow. And yet his whole life would be bound up with helping people to see all that was going to happen from God's point of view. And this seemingly stable and prosperous society that Uzziah had bequeathed to Judah hid within it the seeds of disaster, much like our own society today. I mean, a few years ago, people were hiring helicopters to go to bring the bride to arrive at the, at the wedding. And yet, within all of that, there was the seeds of disaster and judgment. God had decided to act in judgment. But why? Was he being capricious? Was he being mean-spirited? No, because something was on the line, the glory of God itself, himself. And only those who would listen to this message could possibly escape and be the the seed for for a new nation. This is the message Isaiah would have to bring. So let's look at the scene and and, and see, see it as it unfolds. Firstly, there's very clearly the contrast between earthly and heavenly power. Earthly kingship and divine kingship. There's two kings in this picture. There's Uzziah, who's dead, and there's the living God, who cannot die. And when the human king is seen in all his fatal weakness, and all the attendant insecurity that comes from that, Isaiah's eyes are drawn to another king, the one who is the true king of Israel, the one who is the true lord of his people, and he's revealed In awesome, almost blinding glory, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne in the year that King Uzziah died. One king in his tomb, the other on his throne. And the description just keeps magnifying this contrast. He's high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And so not only is Isaiah uh, caught up in this awe-inspiring vision, but he's given a a, a glimpse of of, of the the glory of heaven itself because he sees the the seraphim, these angelic beings whose whose primary purpose seems to be to to proclaim to guard, and to, to minister to the glory of God. And even as they do so, These pure beings, even as they do so, they hide their face before him. It's as though there's only one face that needs to be gazed on. There's only one being whom we really need to look at, and that is the Lord himself. And the seraphim cry out to each other, it seems, proclaiming something. They cried one to another, saying, Holy Holy, holy is Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, why do they keep saying the whole earth is full of his glory? Because, in a sense, that's going to be the unfolding of Isaiah's ministry and mission. We think, and it's not wrong to think this, that God's glory is revealed in what he does for us. And so it is. In the salvation of his people, God's glory is primarily and clearly revealed. But God's glory is revealed if we're prepared to see it and acknowledge it in everything. As we were reminded in the psalm, the very heavens declare the glory of the Lord. What's the the dissonance here? What's the discordant note? That although the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, the whole earth doesn't acknowledge the Lord's glory. The non-human creation proclaims it just by their very existence. The sun proclaims it day by day, not so much today, but most days it proclaims it, proclaims the glory of God. We were created to proclaim the glory of God in an even deeper way, by a conscious acknowledgement of him in a loving relationship with him. That's how it's supposed to be. The fact that that's not how it is does not take away from the fact that God demands that that ultimately how it will be. And so whether it be, as we'll see later, in judgment or redemption, in judgment or salvation, ultimately, one way or another, the whole earth, the whole universe will shine the glory of God. God will proclaim the reality of who God uh, is. And then look at verse 4. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So here we have, if you like, physical manifestations. It's like. The, the, the immediate vicinity of where Isaiah is, which is the temple of God itself, it's as though it's, it's being strained beyond breaking point to try and accommodate what's happening. It's a bit like, you remember, whenever Solomon dedicated the temple and the, the priests couldn't go into the temple initially because the glory of God descended and basically occupied the, 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 the holy space of the temple itself. And it's something similar, I think, that's happening here. It's literally shaking. The physical constraints of the temple just cannot cope with this manifestation of God's glory. And neither can Isaiah himself. Which leads us to our second point. God's servant in the face of God's glory. As the posts of the temple are shaking and the temple is filled with smoke, what's Isaiah's reaction? Wow, this is some experience. No. (laughs) What if I tell my friends about this one? Woe is me, for I am undone. This is the one who, perhaps of all the Old Testament prophets, is given the privilege of giving us the clearest picture of the coming Messiah, his kingdom, and his glory. But his initial sense is not one of responsibility and certainly not one of privilege. His initial apprehension is that of unworthiness. Because ultimately what you have here is the raw realities of the spiritual condition of the human race. We have a sinner in the face of a holy God. Not quite a sinner in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards said. But here we have a sinner in the face of a holy God. You see, that's everyone's starting point. Whether they acknowledge it or not. It's the starting point for judgment. It's the starting point for salvation. And by definition, it has to be the starting point for service as well. You remember in Luke chapter 5, where where Luke recalls the calling of the early disciples. And they're out fishing. They come back exhausted. And Jesus is on the shore. And he says, okay, go on out and fish again. He says, oh, we've been fishing all night. We've given her our all. and We caught nothing Let your nets down on the other side of the boat, Jesus says. All right, Peter says, Lord, if you say it, we'll do it. And of course, we know what happens. The the, the miraculous catch of fishes and the, the nets are breaking. And suddenly it dawns on Peter. What happens? He doesn't start thinking about how many fish they have, the price they'll get for them. He falls on his knees at Jesus' feet and says, depart from me, O Lord. For I am a sinful man. He has the same experience, doesn't he, that Isaiah has here? Suddenly there's this realization of who I am compared to who he is. Why is that? Well, I think it's because we need to see ourselves as much unworthy sinners as the people we live among and to whom God purposes to send us. That those who are commissioned with the message of the gospel of grace have to see themselves first and last as recipients of grace. We have to see ourselves as saved sinners sent to sinners who need salvation. And so God ensures by this this awareness that should never leave us, even when he cleanses us and equips us, that we've been sent to proclaim the glory of the Lord in whose presence, by our nature, we're not worthy to stand. You see, that's what's going to ensure that our focus continually is on God's glory, which is revealed in his grace and not in any sense of self-righteousness. There are many inhibitors to the gospel of grace. We spend a whole ten sermons on that, but one of them, perhaps the one that we find hardest to deal with, is not the content of the gospel. I think we're pretty good at getting the content of the gospel right, but the character in which we bring it. And how terrible it is if we put in a dissonance, a discordance between the message of the gospel and the manner in which we bring it. If our focus is not God's glory and our unworthiness apart from who he is and what he's done for us, then our theological exactitude will be sadly wasted because God will not bless anything that doesn't focus on on his glory, so how do we do that, or rather, how does God do that? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he'd taken with tongues from the altar it 's still hot, and he touched my mouth with it. The altar, of course, here is where the sacrifices took place, which were a reminder, as Hebrews reminds us, of, of the need for cleansing from sin. It's the work of the altar, for us the, the work ultimately of Calvary, that equips us. And that's, that's so impo- not just so important, but so appropriate, isn't it? Because it's at at the altar, the ultimate altar, at Calvary, where God's glory and God's grace savingly meets our inability and our unworthiness. And so the message of the, the gospel is always not just come to Christ, sinners, poor and needy, but you're hearing it from a sinner who is poor and needy. The glory of God is continually exhibited in not just the message we bring, but the lives with which we bring it, when that is our our message. Our experience is basically what God has done for me, he can do uh, for you. So, the altar takes away the guilt of sin and equips for service. I'm sure you've often heard it said, as Christians, we do not just need to preach the gospel to others, but we need to continually preach the gospel to ourselves. And this work of redemption changes everything. The, the work of the altar Equips. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. You are a sinner living in the midst of a sinful people, but God has been gracious to you. And bring that message to others. The work of redemption opens up the hearts and the ears of, of those redeemed to hear and respond to God's uh, call. And so God, the the Lord, speaks again from the throne. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And almost without a thought, spontaneously, in, in, in response to having his iniquity taken away and his sin purged, Isaiah who moments before is, is, is trembling and conscious of his unworthiness. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He cries out, here am I. Send me. We can be sent to the people of unclean lips because our sins have been purged. But his message, certainly initially, is not an encouraging one. It's a message of judgment, isn't it? So whenever God calls us, even when our task is, at least part of it, humanly unrewarding, as Isaiah's would be, he would continue remembering who had sent him. Remembering the glory of God that had been revealed to him and indeed revealed in him by God's graciousness to him. Not simply looking at circumstances, not looking at how people respond. You see, the the motive for an effective ministry and all of us have been called to ministry at some level is not Success as we would like success to be, or as we would like to measure success. But a constant remembrance, bathing in, rejoicing in, focusing on the glory of God. God deserves that I do this. He is so gracious. He is so glorious. I cannot forget in life and death and for all eternity who he is and what is. He has done for me. But thirdly, the burden of Isaiah's message is judgment, but folded in it, salvation too. Look at verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. So God commands us here to speak the word that he has given. Not to turn everyone to the Lord, but to judge those who have refused to repent. And this brings us to a a subject that we find difficult but we have to look at it in the light of the fact that God has revealed it and in the light of his glory. That the whole earth is and will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Not because everybody will turn to God. Oh, that they would, but the Bible says that they will not. But their existence will still bring glory to him, even in judgment as well as in salvation. The existence of every human being, of every atom of existence, can and must and cannot refuse to bring ultimate glory to God. And so part of this message is, you will glorify me, whether you like it or not. And this word of judgment touches the very areas where people have refused to acknowledge God. In other words, the ability and the willingness to hear what he says. This is sometimes called the judicial blindness. That a point comes when God says, yes, you, the word will continue. The word will continue to be preached. But to you, it might as well not be preached. Because your spiritual eyes will remain blinded and your spiritual ears remain deft. deaf." And they say it's devastated. He says, Lord, how long? I'm not sure here whether he's referring to how long must I preach this message or, or how long will this judgment uh, continue? And don't ask a question if you don't want the answer, because <laughs> he gets the answer. Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses without man, the land utterly desolate. Yahweh has removed men far away. Probably speaking here about the captivity. The forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a turban tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed will be its stump. This is going to be an incredibly hard judgment. At this point in history, other than the death of the king, there's very little indication of anything negative happening. But God says, this is what's going to happen. This is part of my plan. This is part of the revealing of my glory. And yet, folded into all of this will be tremendous grace and redemption and, and blessing. We see this practically, don't we, in the out, the out a working of God's judgment when the, the captivity is taken in two waves to, to Babylon. Amongst them are, are Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God preserves his people, his tenth, his tithe, if you like, his portion in the midst of it all. And like a, the stump of a tree that has been cut down or burnt down, it's not dead, and from it new life will come. How will this new life come? Well, as the prophecy unfolds, we see that this new life comes in the form of a person, the servant of the Lord, who comes like a a shoot out of dry ground. Of course, it's speaking of of Christ himself. This servant of the Lord who we discover in Isaiah 53 will be the, the ultimate altar, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate priest, the ultimate offering to reconcile sinners with God. And so, this holy seed is, first of all, it's Christ, isn't it? But then it's those who are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In him, we have pardon for sin. Our iniquity is taken away. Our lips have been opened. Our eyes have been opened that we can see. Our ears have been unstopped that we can hear. A heart of stone has been taken away and replaced by a heart of flesh so that we can feel and move and live as God would have us to be. So what about you? As you look at this God, the living God, the God who really is as he really is, And you stand before him conscious, like was, how can I say, how, was how can I be in the presence of such a God as God is? The answer is in Christ, in the Holy Seed, in, in the one in whom, even in the midst of judgment, redemption comes. In the midst of judgment, mercy is revealed. At the place of judgment, Calvary, grace, is poured out. And having received that unmerited mercy, that free forgiveness, that unexpected grace, one of the ways you'll know you've received it is how you respond to it. I'll go. I'll tell people, whatever you want them to hear, Lord, Send me. Mightn't be a preacher or a prophet, but I can tell my family. I can speak over a cup of coffee. Send me to tell people who you are, who they are, and how these otherwise irreconcilable truths can be reconciled in Christ. Amen.